Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today's message was originally preached on Sunday, December 6th by Pastor Rob Schaff. This is the first message in our sermon series entitled Christmas Spirit, Advent 2020. Check out sardisfellowship.com for more information about our church. Hello, my name is Rob Schaff and I'm the pastor of discipling here at Sardis Fellowship. And today we're starting a brand new sermon series called The Christmas Spirit. Now, my family has been easing into watching our favorite Christmas movies for a few weeks now. It seems like everybody has their favorite Christmas movies to watch at this time of the year. Maybe it's this one or this one or this one or this one. There's tons of them. We just watched Elf starring Will Ferrell and Zoe Deschanel like uh, I think a week ago. If you haven't seen it, it's a comedy about a human who was raised by Santa's elves who one day left the North Pole to find his family in New York City and who had a bit of trouble fitting in. Now, because I've been thinking about this message series and the messages that I'd be preaching, there's a part of the movie that really caught my attention. Near the end of the movie, Santa's sleigh has crashed in Central Park because there was a sudden loss of Christmas spirit. Santa says something along the lines of, Oh, the clausometer! It suddenly dropped down to zero! There's just no Christmas spirit anymore! There was too much strain! The movie Elf... Uh, Santa's sleigh is powered by Christmas spirit. And Christmas spirit is how much people believe in Santa or not. Now, when you think of Christmas spirit, what pops into your mind? Maybe it's trading in your pumpkin spiced lattes for eggnog lattes or peppermint mochas. Maybe you think of light displays that pop up on people's front lawns. Maybe you think of feasting with family and presents under the tree Bing Crosby or Nat King Cole or Michael Buble on the stereo. Be honest, maybe even a little Mariah Carey, all I want for Christmas is you. I think when we think of Christmas spirit, we tend to think about all of the things that make us feel Christmassy. There's nothing wrong with those things. Trips to the airport to pick up relatives or trips to the mall to pick up presents or getting together for the Christmas Eve service. Those are all great things. I love those things. But this year has shown us something, and it's something that we've known all along, but haven't ever really needed to think that much about. All of those Christmassy things are fragile. They're easily broken. They're easily taken away. And if you've ever lost a loved one or a friend or a spouse, then you know that this time of year isn't easy. And if you've ever had a hard time scraping money together to put presents under the tree, maybe you know that this isn't easy either. But this year unprecedented amount of people aren't traveling and won't get together with their families or are out of work and won't be able to afford what they'd normally expect at this time of the year. There aren't any Christmas plays or pageants. Churches aren't able to gather to celebrate the birth of Jesus. People are feeling this in mass and that's sad. It's okay to be sad about that. With this sermon series, we want to talk about how our world needs Christmas spirit, but we're not talking about lattes and clausometers and plane tickets and turkeys. We're talking about the true miracle of Christmas. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that's Matthew 1, 23, quoting Isaiah 7, 14. Now, a virgin birth is a miracle. That is not normally how births work. But God with us is the real miracle of Christmas, that I'm talking about. Our world could use a big helping of God with us right now. Throughout this sermon series, we're going to be talking about the Christmas spirit by looking at the candles of the Advent wreath. Hope, peace, 
joy, love, and Christ. And today, we're talking about hope. Would you describe yourself as a hopeful person? Do you generally have hope? All humans hope. It's only natural. Without any effort at all, we naturally desire a future that is based on the hopeful possibilities that we experience. We experience good things. We're optimistic things will continue to go good. And if we experience bad things, we're pessimistic. Maybe we wish things would get better, but maybe we doubt that things ever really will. If things get really bad and we lose all hope, man, we, we fade into despair. Would you describe yourself as a hopeful person? Maybe you feel that you are. Maybe you feel that you aren't. It probably feels a bit like ridiculous timing for me to ask the question, are you a hopeful person, considering we're in the middle of a global pandemic and a lot of our experiences these days ain't so great? But I actually think that it's an important time to be asking and seeking to answer this question. Maybe you're thinking, well, before COVID, it was easy to say that I was a hopeful person, but these days, not so much. COVID has affected all of us, from anger and frustration to impatience and resignation, to loneliness and sadness, and maybe even depression, all the way to straight-up denial and, well, whatever this is, I'm sick of it. Let's just buckle down and get through this. Nobody's at their best right now. Everyone is under a lot of strange sort of pressure. Sometimes we live by the philosophy, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. But what if you aren't tough? What if you're exhausted? What if you're feeling weak? Is it wrong to feel exhausted and weak when life seems hell-bent on wearing us down? The problem uh, when it comes to hope is that two people can experience the exact same situation and react completely differently. I mean, just take a look at this glass of water. Apparently, how you describe it says something about who you are. Are you a glass half full or a glass half empty kind of person? Is that the sort of subjective thing that hope is? We tend to think of hope as being an attitude that is informed by what we experience. You know, hope is subjective. It changes from person to person based on whatever life experience they bring to a situation. Or if they choose to ignore their life experience, if it was negative, and choose to be a glass half full type of person. Is that what hope is? No. That might be how we commonly think of hope, but that's not what hope is in the Bible. Biblical hope works differently. And Advent is the time of year in the church's calendar when we take the time to recalibrate our hope away from the subjectivity of our own experience towards the objectivity of God. Today, we're going to be reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah. And anytime you read the prophets, you need to know that there is a rich historical context and there are also often different levels of meaning. And you should also know that we don't have the time to dig into all of that today. For my purposes today, it is enough to know and understand that the book of Isaiah is intentionally written to two groups of people. Isaiah had two groups of people in mind. First, those of Isaiah's generation who had strained from the, con the covenantal agreement that they had made with God in the Mosaic Law and were therefore facing potential exile. And second, those of future generations who would be living in exile and looking to make sense of it all. So Isaiah is looking around at the spiritual darkness that he sees around him and the people who claim to belong to God. Isaiah observes that people are living like they don't know God at all. Isaiah knows that in Deuteronomy 30, 19, after giving the law 
to the people, Moses says, Today the heavens and the earth witness against you that I have given you the choice between life and death, between blessings and curses. Oh, that you would choose life so that your descendants might live. That's Moses speaking for God to the people. Isaiah knows the people have already made their choice. They have chosen death and curses. So Isaiah prophesies, calling his contemporaries to choose life, to turn back to God, to remember their covenant with God and to be the true people of God. At the end of Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah describes a time when people are desperate for answers and would do anything to get them. They want to know what their future has for them, and they would even go so far as to consult the dead to get the answers they need to secure a hope for their future. And he writes this, When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward will curse their king and their God. They will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. What a hopeless and ironic picture. In their quest to find hope for life, they turn to mediums and spiritists and consult the dead. They get no answers. They curse God in hopeless rage, and then they join the very dead that they consulted. They find distress and darkness and gloom, and that's it. Isaiah says, why look to the dead for answers when you can turn to the living God? Well, sometimes it just feels better to do anything, even the wrong thing, rather than to sit around waiting patiently for the right thing. When things aren't happening the way that we want, we enthusiastically do anything we can to make things happen. We often have this sort of misplaced zeal in our lives. There's this train track just north of Eagle Landing here in Chilliwack uh, where the train crossing seems to take forever. And for some reason, I always pull up right as the train starts crossing the tracks. There are usually a few people ahead of me in line who start to make very angry U-turns, revving their engines as high as they can go, really high, you know, as they tear around, making the six-kilometer detour as they head over the Vetter overpass so they don't have to wait for the train. They'd rather drive 10 minutes than wait 8 minutes. Now, I'll admit, I, I did that before. When things are going according to our plan, we'd rather be busy doing something than sitting still and waiting patiently. And in Isaiah's time, people were feeling that. They would rather do anything than wait, even do things that don't make sense, like consult with the dead and the powers of darkness, hoping to find light in life. With the mentality of, well, it's better than doing nothing, we get ourselves in all sorts of trouble. Isaiah warns them that that mentality will only lead them to death and darkness. But Isaiah continues in chapter 9. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the lands of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee by the nations, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. 
You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Isaiah is saying, in the past, God brought people low and he humbled them at Zebulun and Naphtali. But in the future, out of Galilee, God will bring light to the darkness. He will restore a broken people. People's mourning will be turned to rejoicing. Their slavery ended, their struggle over. That's what God has for their future. How will God accomplish this? How will this darkness be defeated? Where will this light come from? Well, Isaiah continues. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. A child will be born who changes everything. In 2 Samuel 7:16, God promised King David that your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. This was a promise God made that people were waiting for God to pull through on. And it is one that Isaiah expected to be fulfilled through the birth of a Messiah. Isaiah knows that it'll happen someday, and he looks forward to that day. This child will reign on David's throne. He'll establish it. He'll uphold it. There will be justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. That's a big promise that God made, and Isaiah is trusting that God will fulfill it. That trust is not based on wishful thinking, and it certainly isn't a projection of the optimism that Isaiah experienced in his lifetime. At the end of this passage, Isaiah says something that's important and easy to miss. He says, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Salvation from darkness isn't accomplished by the misplaced zeal of people doing all of the wrong things to make the best of a bad situation. Isaiah states, it is the zeal of the Lord that will accomplish this. God's zeal is God's own energy and enthusiasm and activity in pursuit of his own objective. And that is what will change things from darkness to light, from death to salvation. God will accomplish this. He's the only one that can. Isaiah calls people to cut out the destructive busywork, to turn back towards God, to remember the faithfulness of God and the covenant promises they have with him, and to do this. Wait. Wait. Wait for the zeal of God to accomplish what he promised he would do. Remember who God is and wait for him to accomplish it. That is biblical hope. Biblical hope isn't based on the good or the bad that we are experiencing or feeling. It's based completely on who God is. It's remembering what God has done in the past, and it's trusting that God will do what he has promised in the future. It's waiting with anticipation for what God will accomplish. It's knowing 
that the faithful will experience the fullness of God's goodness both in the present and in the future. And the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the objective focus where we as Christians find our hope. The objective hope in our God whose zeal accomplishes these things. The book we are reading with our young adults group is called Liturgy of the Ordinary, and it's written by Tish Harrison Warren. And at the end of the chapter on patience, she describes a situation that goes a little something like this. Imagine you're stuck in a traffic jam in the middle of a freeway on a hot summer day on your way to go to the beach. Now, imagine that for some reason, everybody had their destinations and the end goal of their journeys erased from their memory. People look around and suddenly think that the grimy, hot traffic jam is all there is to life. People get out of their cars and try to get comfortable. Someone starts a poker game. Someone blows up an air mattress. Someone else cracks out the portable barbecues and lawn chairs. People think, well, there's nowhere to go, so uh, we might as well make the best of it. But eventually, water is in short supply, and the car's AC units drain the fuel and the batteries, and people start arguing over who gets gas and who doesn't. People hoard food. People hoard water. Fights break out. Everyone is just trying to eke out an existence on the freeway, believing that gas fumes and concrete pillars and the traffic jam is all that there is. If you forget your destination, you'll live on the freeway in a traffic jam thinking, well, I guess this is my life now. But if you know the destination, then you know that the traffic jam is just something you need to wait through. You have hope that you will get where you're going. All you got to do is wait. Isaiah hoped for the day of Jesus' birth and Jesus was born. Jesus was the literal incarnation of all that Isaiah ever hoped for. He's the promises of God and the faithfulness of God and the redemptive work of God and the deity of God made flesh. God with us, Emmanuel, that's Jesus. And he lived and he died and he was resurrected and the power of sin and death was broken once and for all. And it was the zeal of the Lord that accomplished this. So I'll ask again, are you a hopeful person? In the best of times, it can feel like our whole society is walking away from God, and it can feel so overwhelming and helpless. Now, at a pandemic and the ensuing conflict and division in our society, and it can feel so totally hopeless. We don't know what to say, we don't know what to do, we don't know how to respond. It feels like our world is so dark, falling deeper and deeper and deeper into darkness. So what do we do? We wait with hope. We remember God's faithfulness in the past, that Jesus Christ was born. We trust in God's promises for the future, that Jesus Christ will return. We wait, orienting our lives towards Jesus, longing for the day that he returns to finish what he started. And that is the redemption of all things. It is the zeal of the Lord that will accomplish all of this. And that's what Advent is all about. The word Advent means coming or arriving or appearing. During the Advent season, we remember the first time Jesus came to earth, and we look forward with hope to the second time when Jesus will come again. What does this hope look like in our lives? We don't camp out on the freeway in the middle of a traffic jam because we think, well, I guess this is our lives now. No, we remember that we have a destination, and we wait, pointing people to that destination. Historian and theologian Robert Wilkin writes, The singular mark of patience is not endurance or fortitude, but hope. To be impatient is to live without hope. Patience is grounded in the resurrection. 
It is a life oriented toward a future that is God's doing. And it's a sign is longing, not so much to be released from the ills of the present, but an anticipation of the good that is still to come. That describes the prophet Isaiah perfectly. In Isaiah 8, 17 to 18, he writes this, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. Here am I and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. So are you a hopeful person? In the traffic jam of life, do you remember that you have a destination? In the darkness of our world, how do you live in the light of Jesus? I'll ask another way. How is your life a sign and symbol of everything the zeal of God has accomplished in Jesus and has yet to accomplish in our world? The Christmas spirit our world desperately needs isn't to feel Christmassy. The Christmas spirit our world desperately needs is to experience Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus Christ, God incarnate, stepping into the darkness and death to bring people to light and eternal life. The Christmas spirit our world desperately needs is to rub shoulders with Christians who live with hopeful longing, not trying to abandon the ugliness that we are surrounded by, but who engage it with love. The Christmas spirit our world desperately needs is Christians to model what it means to wait, abandoning distraction and busyness and choosing to wait and to trust that there will come a day when Jesus returns and makes everything right. The Christmas spirit our world desperately needs isn't the fragile subjective hope that comes from the good life, but the objective hope that can only be found in our good God. I want to end the sermon with a quote from theologian James K.A. Smith, who writes, Believers will always sit somewhat uneasy in the present, haunted by the brokenness of the now. The future we hope for, a future when justice rolls down like an ever-flowing stream, hangs over our present and gives us a vision of what to work for in the here and now as we continue to pray, your kingdom come. Here are some questions for you to discuss. Would you say that hope is a word that describes you? How much of your daily experience of hope is rooted in subjective things, like how well life is going, and how much of your experience of hope is rooted in the objectivity of God's goodness found in the person of Jesus Christ? Can you give examples? This Christmas, what would it look like for you and your family to intentionally embody the hope of Christ for the world around us to see? What wouldn't it look like? Thanks for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.